Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we began a conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is currently a professor of psychology. She's the director of graduate training and the coordinator of the behavioral analysis program area at West Virginia University. And today we're celebrating the publication of an article that Claire and I wrote together for the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. And the article is on loopy training. This was in response to a call for papers that the journal put out last fall that was asking for articles that explored the connections between the applied animal behavior community and the broader behavior analytic community. There often seems to be a divergence between what appears in the scientific literature and what people who actually train animals are doing. The idea for this issue of the journal was to establish some connections between these two communities. What is it that people who are training animals are actually doing? What does the academic community know about that? What are the gaps, and what, if anything, should be done to fill them? So Claire asked if I would like to write a paper with her, and the result is our article entitled Connecting Animal Trainers and Behavior Analysts Through Loopy Training. It has just been published online, so we're celebrating by recording this podcast. Towards the end of part one, we were discussing percentile schedules, and Claire was considering the need to arrange environments so learners can be successful, but that are also practical for the implementer. And that's where we'll pick up again as we step back into the conversation. It's, it's very interesting um, to think about how we arrange environments that make learners successful, but that are also practical for the implementer, right? So how do we take folks who want, have a particular thing that they want a horse to do, or they want a general learner to do and equip them to have the, the skills to be able to do that? And is it possible that we can take shortcuts like using mathematical criteria, like percentile schedules, or is it really the case that no, there's too much foundational work and there is too much um, in the moment adjustment that you need to make Uh, in relation to what your learner is doing right now, this very second, that you need to spend the time to build the entire sophisticated repertoire. And and you might need to wait to build that super long duration until you have a bunch of other training skill sets under your own belt to be able to do it. And I think that's that's an interesting question because we do live in a time where people want outcomes and they want them yesterday. Uh, So I think, and I'm sure that the this is something that Alex, you run into is, you know, when it takes time to build things from the ground up, people get impatient. And there's a balance between getting people to experience the successes that they see for themselves and being able to do it in a way that is truly constructional and based on everybody being able to access reinforcers, the implementer, the learner, everybody having a good time in the situation. And it's understanding that the constructional approach, it's a very different pathway. So, you know, I described earlier the, the lunging. I want to lunge my horse. So I'm going to go to a horse book and I'm going to open the chapter on lunging. And in, within that chapter uh, will be all the information that I need to lunge my horse. Or I want to get my horse on a horse trailer. So I'm going to go to a clinic that will be on trailer loading horses. And within that clinic, I will learn everything I need to know about uh, loading my horse on a trailer. And it, it goes on and on of, I want to learn this specific outcome. So give me this little hologram, as it were, that tells me in a nutshell, everything that I need to know about that one task, that one outcome. And we're trained to think 
of training in this very outcome oriented way instead of looking looking at it of well I want to load my horse on the trailer and I'm going to this clinic where I'm going to be teaching my horse how to take treats I'm going to be teaching a reinforcement process and I'm going to be teaching my horse to orient to targets and to stand on mats and then and then to stand quietly beside me but wait a minute I, I just want to load my horse on the trailer. Why do I have to do all of this? And then as you begin to explore it, you begin to say, oh, oh, I get it. I'm teaching all of these component skills, and I'm going to use these component skills to, to teach my horse to load well and to load safely and to load without all of the, the drama that I often see if I go to that trailer loading clinic. And oh, by the way, I can use these same skills over here to teach my horse to lunge, which looks completely different from trailer loading, or to teach my horse to, to go through a series of trail obstacles, which looks completely different from the other activities as well, or to stand here quietly while I groom him or I go through medical care. And it's a very different way of thinking about training and looking at training that is represented by this work. So I want to talk about um, <clears throat> the article again, the references, because there's a lot of references at the end. How many are there, Claire? Do you know? I don't know. I didn't count them. They're a fair number. A page and a half of references, and each page is probably 30, so maybe 50 references at the end. How long does that take to put together? A lifetime of study, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is What's a... that? What did you say? A Alex? lifetime of study. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, obviously, because you would know where to look. And that's from everything that you read. You would, look, you would know what to search for, probably. But, I mean, still, I, you know, for me, it's, um, I always look at references. I... It's, it's part of, you know, what makes an article credible. So I'd like to hear you on that a little bit, because I'm sure you put in some time on that part of the article too, which a lot of people will probably, well, the scientists will look at it probably more than the general public, although maybe not. I think that you're right that the scientists will look at it more than the general public. I was reading, it's, it's an interesting point of difference in community, I think. So it, it, it warms my heart, Dominique, that you go to the references and you look at them. I was reading an article that was translating a scientific finding for horse owners in a magazine the other day. And the author said in the paper, like, I will, things that are related to the literature, I will say, parenthesis ref and you will know that that's something that is related to the literature and I was like no no tell me the actual reference like I need to know right then mm -hmm. tell me what it is um because I like you want to be able to have the source of things I find things interesting and it is a fun exercise to be able to trace things back because um people put their own interpretation on references and so sometimes someone will say here is a fact. Here is the reference. And if you go look at the original reference, mm. you'd be like, oh, I don't really know that this reference actually says this fact. One of the fun ones um, that I, I like in behavior analysis that is an example of that is from my doctoral advisor. He published a paper in 1993 where in the discussion section, he says, the delivery of time-based reinforcers, so independent of responding, may be valuable for schools because it may be easier for teachers to do. And the number of times that that paper has gotten cited as delivery of response-independent reinforcers is valuable for schools because it is easier for people to do is just astonishing. Um, okay. I give him grief over it all the time because that's not what he, that's not what he said in the paper. Um, but that is certainly what people cite his paper as saying. And it happens a lot. It 
happens. So I think having, looking at the references is a good thing to do, particularly if you read something and you go, is that really a fact? Mm. Um, If it doesn't stick right with you, it's good to go to the source. I will say for the references for this paper, um, Alex's initial response is a little bit right, um, which is I had the luxury in this paper of pulling, seeing the connections that I knew about. Mm-hmm. You see the connections that you know about. And so mm-hmm. fortunately for me, in some cases, this was literature and published studies that I already knew pretty mm-hmm. well. And that helps. I mean, you want to go back when you're writing a paper and make sure that you're not doing what I just said, which is citing something when the paper doesn't really say what you think it said or what you remember it saying. But there were two pieces that were new that I read a lot for. Um, One was the magazine training section that we've already talked about. Um, And part of that is that I had to go back into some old, some of the older literature. And as you remember from my story earlier, I was not well-versed in graduate school on magazine training, which led to some disasters. Um, And then the other section was on building responses and chains. And so we talk in the paper about the loopy training kind of approach of building chains, where it's in a traditional behavior analytic use of the word response chain. A chain is a series of responses where there's an initial stimulus that cues the series of responses. And then once that starts, each response serves as the discriminative stimulus or the cue for the next response. There's not intervening cues, external cues. Um, And so the example that I give when I teach my classes is line dancing, right? So like, when I am line dancing, I have a series of responses and there's an initial kind of cue of the music comes on and I recognize the point at which the song is and then I have an entry point of my first step and then that step kind of cues the next steps, but there's not another cue along the way. And if you were to terminate the music, I could continue to do the dance. But in the loopy training approach, we've got responses that are their own little units that we can cue flexibly to build these really long chains. And I went back and looked at a good bit of the behavior analytic chaining literature to see, is there a parallel in there or not? And fortunately for me, I work at a really great institution for behavior analysis, and I have some really fantastic colleagues that I was having lunch with. And I said, so chaining, let's talk, let's have, let's talk about chaining over lunch today. Um, Here's this other approach to chaining. What do you think about this? And one of my colleagues said, oh, you should look at the drug discrimination literature, which I never would have looked at um, because they use this approach to chaining in the drug discrimination literature where they have a series of cues that are presented and they can do chains more flexibly. Um, And so it was a fun opportunity to look at a literature that I never would have looked at and I never would have, they don't call it chaining in that literature. I never would have found it if it wasn't for the expertise of a colleague. Mm. Um, but a, a really fun chance to think about like what the difference is between the way that you build chains where the previous response is the cue for the next response and the way that you build chains where you have more um, implementer handler involvement in what that next response will be. So that one I did a fair bit of reading for. And interestingly, not much of that ended up in the paper. Mm. So not this okay. one, not this not one, this one, not this <laughs> one, right? That's, that's always the fun is that even the things that don't, that you end up saying, no, this is too far afield. It's not right? lost. Right. Um, so that saves you time on the references for the next paper, right? Mm. Now I know something that I didn't know before, which is, mm. which is fun. And that'll stay with me. And I um, now have thoughts about how we can compare some of these approaches. And I've got another literature to call on and to think about how they're doing it in that literature and what that shows. And those are interesting. And that after all, I think was why we were interested in doing this article together was to say, what is it about the loopy training that is intriguing to you and connects with the research that you have been looking at over the years? And if, if we collaborated with you know, name uh, any other behavioral analyst, it would have been a different article that we would have, where I would have said, what is it about the horsework that I'm doing 
that you find intriguing. Let's do an article about that. And I, I think that's a really interesting approach of what is it that those of us who are in the applied field, who are doing, or you know, out there actually teaching, whether it's horses or children or dogs or whatever it is, what is it that can be learned from that, from what we're doing that references back to the academic field? And it was really interesting to have those discussions about the chaining because that answered a lot of questions that I had from some of the very late night conversations at the Clicker Expo, where we're up until two o'clock in the morning or beyond, discussing the difference between chains and I sequences. <laughs> and it's, it, oh, yes. And what it does is it, for me, it answered, oh, that's why it was a relevant conversation. That's, that's where that piece connects and slots in. So that was that was very clarifying for me. So thank you for that one. So. It is interesting how our communities have such similarity in the words that we use, but sometimes they we mean very different things. Um, and so we touch on this yes. in the, one of the latter sections of the paper. But one of the things that was hard for me um, when I started talking with people who had been connected to like Karen Pryor's work in particular was you're talking about stimulus control in ways that made no sense to me. And I was like, I don't understand why you're talking about. And I would say something like, well, you've got some stimulus control there. And then they would be like, what do you mean some stimulus control? Like, well, you've got some stimulus control. That is the learner is reacting to this, to this cue similarly to how they react to this other cue. So there's some stimulus control there. And you're like, well, we're using this very technical word that no one else uses. I understand when people get confused when we use like negative reinforcement and why everybody is confused about negative right. reinforcement because negative is a regular word and reinforcement now in our vernacular is a regular word. But nobody's walking down the street talking about stimulus control. And so it was very confusing to me when I couldn't understand why these conversations about stimulus control made no sense. Um, and then it, I think it was a, one of the calls that you and I had, Alex, where you were like, well, stimulus control, Karen Pryor, you know, quadrants, like you got it or you don't got it. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those four criteria that she lists. And, and if you have those four, you know, the animal responds each and every time to a cue. The animal doesn't respond, doesn't present the behavior when some other cue is given. So, if, you know, if you ask for canter, the horse canters. If you ask for a trot, the horse doesn't canter. You know, you've got these these four criteria that give you full stimulus control. And then when I listen to like Jesus talking about stimulus control, it's like, oh, this is this is something other. This is something else. And who's which language set are we using mm -hmm. right now? How do we understand what we're talking about? All the more reason that we need to be talking to each other, though, because I think that if the communities continue on paths where we're using the same words, but the same technical words to mean different things, it's going to become harder and harder to actually communicate well, because you will say, yes. you know, someone who has a history of working um, with the four questions version of stimulus control is going to say, well, we need to get this under stimulus control. And I'm going to say, we already have it under stimulus control, right? It's more likely to happen in the presence of this particular stimulus than another stimulus. If we don't already have a good relationship where we can sort those things out right. non-combatively, then it's going to make it complicated for me to publish things that are relevant to that person and to make sure that I'm explaining what I mean by stimulus control, um, and also is going to make the conversations more difficult. Well, uh, uh, one word I think that would be interesting to have a definition from both sides is the word applied. What does it mean to a scientist that applied in the applied behavior analysis? And what does it mean to someone like Alex? Is it the same? I want Alex to start with that one. <laughs> And I was thinking, I want Claire to start with that one. Um, well, I would say applied implies that you Applying are- Applying it. <laughs> out, yes, that you are 
out in the real world training. So you're taking it out of controlled laboratory experiments, but you are training for real world applications. And that you are within the structure of your training, you are making use of the concepts that you've been learning from the field of behavioral analysis. Is that a decent start? Sounds pretty good to me, but <laughs> we'll, we'll wait for Claire. <laughs> so it, it's, it's interesting that you bring this up because there's a lot of discussion in the field of applied behavior analysis about what the word applied means. So there is a seminal paper published in applied behavior analysis that was published in 1968 that lists seven dimensions of applied behavior analysis and the idea that these seven things were the things that made applied behavior analysis applied. And so there's seven terms that, well, that made applied behavior analysis applied behavior analysis, I guess. Interestingly, the fourth term is applied. (laughs) 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 The sixth term is analytic and the seventh term is behavioral. So it's a little, you might argue it's a little circular. In that paper though, so that paper was written by Bear Wolf and Risley. So John Bear, who's one of the like leaders, original originators of applied behavior analysis as its own subdiscipline argued that if the, if the problem was socially significant, that is, if people in society cared about it, and this was a problem that was not a, a learner that was not selected because of convenience, right? So not a rat or a pigeon because we can easily breed them, not a college student because I can get those readily, but a, a learner that needed to learn whatever this skill was and a skill that was significant to the learner then that's what made it applied instead of more on the the basic or experimental side of things. I wrote, so I I referenced earlier this paper that I wrote a few years ago that just got a bunch of traction because it got published, it got cited in in another popular paper. Um, But it was in response, so it was a 2017 paper in response to a conceptual paper that was written by several of my colleagues um, and their paper, the conceptual paper argued that we've kind of, we should move past like the 1968 criteria are probably not the right criteria that we should use anymore. And that we should kind of expand everything um, to be applied that has the potential to advance behavior theory-driven understanding of socially important problems. I don't know. I think that that's maybe too broad, but I also wonder the value of making sharp distinctions. There's so much work, there's so much to be learned from each other that I sometimes feel that when we draw sharp boundaries between like, this is applied work and this is not applied work, it has the potential to result in us dismissing things that are really important or informative. Um, and so I think that there's, there's probably a spectrum between things that are applied and things that are more process driven, uh, you know, fundamental understanding of process, but that there's also so much middle ground for us to be able to learn from each other. Um, the understanding the process is really important to being a good animal trainer and if you want to fully understand the process, if you're a process-oriented researcher, you have to understand what's happening out in the world, right? Like you have to understand that both sides of the loop are important and that opens whole new areas of inquiry for you about what happens on the other side of the loop. And we can mock those up in the laboratory where we've got more control and we can start to isolate variables so that it's not, well, the handler was inconsistent, but it was also a rainy day and now it's coming into fall. And so the schedules are changing and the days are shorter. And, you know, I can really, I can control daylight cycles in the lab and I can control what the weather is like in the lab. And that really lets me isolate. Okay. So tell me what this piece, do I need to worry about the consistency of the handler or do I need to worry more about the transition into fall? Um, And so there's just so much to be learned from both sides that I wonder about bright line distinctions and if they're valuable. It's a very long-winded answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. So do you remember some of the other 
rabbit holes that we saw. You know, that would be fun to explore. Or, There's another paper. Do you remember any of the different areas that we were exploring in these long conversations where we're debating over a single word for three hours? <laughs> well, some things that didn't get a lot of airtime in the paper because our paper would have become a book if we weren't careful that would have had to have been published in a different format. But some pieces that got a little bit of airtime in the paper, but I think we could have explored a lot more. Some we've already talked about. So the inconsistencies and in, in what pieces are novice trainers. Of course, I'm really interested in novice implementers, right? So when you're a novice trainer, yeah. what are the pieces that you really need to get um, and, and out of that, we started talking about inconsistent food delivery and inconsistent food delivery, the role of inconsistent food delivery in creating mugging and mugging related behavior, right? So like mugging, biting, swiping, pawing, and how much of that can be attributed to inconsistent food delivery. And this, of course, is really linked to my interest in consistency of of implementer um, behavior. And I think that we get the same kinds of things when we work with kids. So it would be really fun to explore it with horses and to explore it with human learners, right? Because when I walk into a classroom and the, the reinforcer deliveries are, are inconsistent or unpredictable, it really makes our learners seem much more anxious. Mm. So earlier today, this is, this is fascinating to me. We have a, we have a, we're getting ready to do a research study. So my graduate students are in the process of recording videos of where we're deliberately being inconsistent because we want to determine if supervisors who are training new implementers can detect inconsistencies. Okay. So we have two, it's a confederate. We've got two of my research assistants. One of them is acting as a learner and one of them is acting as a therapist and that my therapist, my teacher is deliberately being, making inconsistencies, right? So we have programmed inconsistencies that are happening and our learner is not really learning. She knows what the deal is. Okay. So I walked in earlier today, just before recording this. And I said, how's, how's the video recording going? Like, how are we standing? How's it going? We're in a really inconsistent, they're recording a really inconsistent phase today. So there's 40% consistency. So she's making gobs of errors all over the place. And my research assistant said, I can't figure out, this is a research, she's, she's a research assistant. She knows what the purpose of the study is. She knows what she's supposed to be doing. She yes. knows that there are inconsistencies happening. She knows to look out for the inconsistencies. And she said to me, I can't remember what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I can't, I, I goofed this video up because I couldn't, I'm supposed to, you know, stay working for this amount of time and I'm supposed to engage in unwanted response twice. And I, but I did it three times. And then by the third time I couldn't remember. And I said, I said to her, um, you know, it is so interesting that you say that, you know, what we're doing and that it's inconsistent and still your emotional reaction is that you can't, you don't feel like you can follow along. You don't feel like you can focus. You can't do the things that you are supposed to be doing as an actor in this video. And I just thought it was such a testament to what our learners, human and animal must feel when we are, when we are doing that, when we are not, Yes. Um, in, you know, when we're at 40%, you know, and it's, the food delivery is all over the place or the criterion is all over the place. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, you know, yes. area to explore. Yes. Could be a whole nother, a whole nother paper. I went digging, I'm going to go back to references, Dominique. I went digging for references on inconsistencies in animal handling um, in clicker training and whether or not there were published outcomes on inconsistencies in clicker training with animals. I could only find one paper, we cite it in the, in the loopy training paper, and they couldn't, they didn't detect clear differences. So this was the paper that has looked at this was um, animal trainers in the Apopo project. So the Apopo project is training 
um, pouched rats to detect tuberculosis in landmines. And so they've got trainers who are teaching these pouched rats um, using very structured training um, techniques. And they did not detect problems, major problems when there were inconsistencies in the handler. But I just can't believe that they're not there, right? Yeah. So yeah. What, a, what an interesting area to explore. Yeah, because just from sort of reporting from the trenches, as it were, when I'm watching, especially new handlers, when I'm watching horse handler pairs, and I see the handler who has become really inconsistent, and you have to wonder, you know, what is the history there? Why is this person so inconsistent in their handling? How did this emerge that we have this person who is just all over the map and is not able to focus and provide these nice, tight, clean loops, but is just all over the place? And that would be an interesting exploration. But in any event, what I see is a horse who is incredibly frustrated, who is often presenting really unwanted, sometimes dangerous behavior. And then when I step in and take over and work with the horse for a few minutes. The behavior just settles. And it's not because I've got some magic touch, but because I'm being consistent. And then when the handler learns to become consistent, all of that noise that was in the system seems to go away. Now, nothing is ever erased. I'm sure if they went back to being inconsistent, recreate the conditions as it were, you'd get the same frustrated, uh, mugging behavior. But you can demonstrate that the consistency in the handling makes a difference for the learner. It's clear, you can just demonstrate it so clearly. And it happens frequently enough, often enough, that it's obviously a thing. So it's not just the occasional horse that responds in this way, but the handling that the person presents is having a major effect on their horse learner. And of course, when you're first starting out and you're a beginner, and, and particularly if you're being asked to do something that's really complicated, then of course you're going to be fumbling and tripping over your own two feet. And, and so much of horse training does just exactly that. You're a total beginner. And what are you told to do? Get on the horse and and, <laughs> and, and, and direct it, ride. You know, when, when Jesus says the purpose of training is clarifying contingency, you know, it's the clarity much more than even the positive reinforcement. Yes. It's the clarity that you bring to the training that really makes for a calm learning animal. Because if, if it's all over the place, even if you're using carrots, you're getting all this emotionality, you're not progressing. Yeah. So the inconsistency is the, in a way, it's the opposite of training. And I once had someone say to me in this very accusing term, it's like, you're blaming the handler mm -hmm. and you're going to make them feel bad. It's not the handlers. I mean, it's not. So I think this is, there's, there's two things. I'm going to forget what they are. Hang on. Yeah. Um, I have to write a, so some of my notes are because they're interesting and some of them is because my brain is like a sieve. Um, it's not the handler though, it's behavior. Right. So I think that one of the things that I'm trying to do in my field is that this idea of consistent, consistent implementation has historically been termed in my field to be procedural integrity. And I am working really hard to shift away from the use of the term integrity and towards adherence or fidelity. And the reason for that is that I feel like integrity implies something about the person. It's judgmental. Yeah, it's like you did that, like, even if it's you did that with poor integrity. If we were writing this, if we were writing an article right now on this, and you were using those terms, I would say, what do those two words mean? You know, so procedural integrity, what are we saying there? What is the history of that term? How has it been used? 
And are there problems that are coming in where we need a better word? Oh, yeah. So procedural integrity means what? So procedural integrity is the extent to which a procedure is implemented as it is designed or described. So it's, it's really just consistency. Okay. Are you, do you have a plan? Do you have a training plan? And are you sticking to your training plan? Are, you know, when you say like you should feed the horse, you know, with a particular hand where the horse should be, are you doing that? Or is your hand, are you feeding with your hand, either hand and your hand sometimes high and it's sometimes low? No. So the idea is a sound idea. I think the issue is, is the actual baggage that comes with the term, which is implies that there's something dishonest, dishonest, or, or, <laughs> you know, like you have low integrity and it's like, mm. well, no. Yes. And I have a student who is from Italy right now. And she said, you know, we were having this discussion and she said, oh yeah, well, the Latin root for integrity would imply that it's something about the person, mm. right? But the Latin root for fidelity implies that it's about a relationship mm. um, that it is you know it's about it's about how smooth the the interaction is and so I'm I think this is one of the one of the reasons that it took us so long to edit sentences sometimes is that the words that we choose to use for things matter um, and the way that we talk about things what we imply or connotate about things is important. And so I think when you're talking about people who are implementing procedures, it is important that they don't walk away from that experience feeling like it is something inherent to them. I am a bad handler. I, you know, like I have poor integrity, but rather there's a unit of my behavior that I could change that would make this go better. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And getting them in touch with that right away, I think is that change in their own behavior and seeing the change in their learner is tremendously important. And my guess is that that's true for animal handlers. It's certainly true for teachers. You know, it's true for anybody who feels like they're working in an environment that's high stress or potentially dangerous, right? This getting them to be able to change their own behavior in ways that don't make them feel like they're being judged or blamed for the behavior. Because I, I always think it's enormously good news that, that that's where the disconnect comes from, that there is this inconsistency in the handling, and that when you make these changes so that the loop becomes clean from the handler's perspective, the learner's behavior changes, because that's something mm-hmm. we have control over. It's a, learned, it's a learned skill. Yeah, the problems in the horse, that's much more difficult than saying, oh, if I just go practice my food delivery before I go to my horse, it will make a difference. Well, that's something I can yeah. do. And it's not, it's not something that is wrong with me. You know, it's not as though I can never learn to present the food in, in a consistent basis. It's just that right now, the learning skills that I have have not produced that consistent behavior. And I can do something about it. It's a vicious circle because you're motivated to learn the skills when you have success. And, you know, you won't have success if you don't learn the skills. Because sometimes people will say, oh, I'm I'm just bad at this and go do something else because they don't really want to invest the time in this. Or cultural, you know, historically, they're what they've been told is that they're bad at things. So, so Claire, what was the phrase that you wanted to shift to? From integrity to fidelity. Or there so was another about word. Like, or you adherence. You had to adherence. Or adherence. <laughs> adherence is pulls from the medical terminology. And so it, I think, depends a little bit. You know, who you're talking to is important. Um, and so when I'm talking with psychiatrists, adherence makes some sense to them because they get it in terms of medical adherence. Well, I like it personally. I like adherence. I think there's, it's more factual. Yeah. Adherence isn't, adherence isn't bad. Um, I like it. I like, I don't mind fidelity either. Um, It reminds me of records, right? And I think there's a decent 
there's a decent record analogy, right? Like what, what record would you rather listen to one that's high fidelity or one that's low fidelity? And there are things that you could do to, to shift that around. And I think fidelity also has a better implication of there's a relationship there that Mm. matters, but I don't ask me again in two years and I will (laughs) may have it. I may have another answer. These are still things we did a, we did a, focus group studying this past year, asking researchers who publish regularly in applied behavior analysis, um, why, under what conditions they measured fidelity, under what conditions they measured implementer behavior. Um, it's very rare, actually, in the, well, not very rare, about 50% of articles have some measure of the implementer side of the loop in applied behavior analysis. That number to me I'm biased. That number to me seemed really low. Like only in half of the articles that we're publishing are we measuring that you're even doing what you say that you're doing. And so I was really interested in why, why, why is, why is this so low? And as part of that, as part of that evaluation, I really got thinking about the use of the words, you know, because people would, people said, well, if we're going to measure this, in my research, I'm going to have undergraduate research assistants measure it, but I've got doctoral students who are implementing my procedures. And then it feels weird for an undergraduate to tell a, you know, a doctoral student that they have low integrity. And my undergraduate students aren't comfortable doing that. So we're not doing it. And I thought, well, that's a problem that we should be able to solve. And um, we need to change how we're yes. talking about it so that people don't feel uncomfortable. And we need to get people in contact with but when you implement consistently, your research outcomes are better. You're better able to have good internal validity. So you're better able to say this thing that I manipulated is why behavior happened the way that it happened so that people can use those outcomes. And um, so it was, it really started to shape how I thought about some of these issues and how important it is that we choose how we're labeling things carefully. Yes. And then how we teach people how to work in teams and or and or how to use video because you know that there is an important role when you're watching training teaching there's an important role for the person who is observing the implementation of a procedure who is there monitoring how consistent the handler is and that, that they're not there to find fault or to criticize, mm-hmm. but to help smooth mm-hmm. the procedure. Yeah. And some, some of our procedures are very nuanced and complicated. And so in terms of school-based mm. behavior intervention plans, the average number of components that a teacher is expected to implement of a school-based intervention plan is 13. So there's 13 different components. That's on average. It ranges, I think, if I recall the range correctly, from four to 98, 98 components of a behavior intervention plan. And then you say, okay, so this is a teacher who also has to teach and to manage the rest of the class. So it's uh, how do we build that behavior for the teacher in small enough loops that they don't have to think their way through all of those procedures that when it comes to delivering the reinforcer, that there's some habit to it. There's some, there's some fluency because if you have to stop to think about, okay, now where did I put, and now I do this and where is the, it's right. It's gone. It's gone. gone. So getting even relatively simple procedures. Well, even those 13, 13, 14 step procedures, um, we've been training some new implementers recently in my lab and it has been just so fascinating to me how important it is to build the little pieces in loops. So we have timers that the the teacher needs to use, right? And so there's, it's a, we're working with token delivery systems. So they're delivering tokens and they need to set a timer for the access to the reinforcer. And it was just, we were getting too much variation and it was causing the teacher to be really late. So the tokens were coming four or five, six seconds after the behavior, like way, way, way too late. And we said like, nope, we're just gonna, 
we're just going to practice this one piece with the teacher, right? Like you put the token on the board, you press the button on the timer, you put the token on the board, you press the button on the timer, you put the token on the board, you press the button on the timer, you put the token on the board, you press the button on the timer, put the token on the board. And like your listeners are probably at that point when I said, put the token on the board already saying you press the button on the timer. Um, but it's, it was that that they needed to be able to not have to think about what's that next what's that next step? What do I need to yes. do? Yeah. Um, and when we tried to teach everything all at once, thinking that this is a, this is a one page behavior plan, right? Like this should be simple to do. How hard is it to teach yeah. a horse how to target? But when you really think about it, there's all of these little bits that go into it that have to be consistent for it to work really well. And that you can't take for granted yes. are in the skill set. Yeah. I mean, they were certainly motorically in the skill set, right? Like these are, these are grown teachers. They can put a token on a board and they can press a button on a timer. Um, the kicker is yeah. getting them so that they're happening without a lot of other behavior in the middle. Cause there's also lots of other things that they know how to do. Mm, um, yeah. And those, those other responses start to interfere. I want to loop back to your handler example that you gave a minute ago. So you said when you're working in person in clinics, and I have not yet had the pleasure of being able to do an in-person clinic with you. And when you're working with, then you have the handlers who are inconsistent. You can take the horse and the horse settles. And then I think you said you can hand the horse back to the handler and the horse stays a little more settled. No, it's, it's once the handler- Cleans up the loops. So you would, I would take the horse because things are falling apart. And it doesn't help the horse. It doesn't help the handler to have a horse, particularly this is often a horse who's traveled to a clinic. He's in a strange environment. So it, it's not helpful to anyone to watch more of a horse and handler struggling. So it's, let me just see what's going on here. Let me take this horse for a couple minutes and just feel out what we're dealing with here. And that gives me a chance to sort of gauge what kind of a reaction pattern are we really dealing with with this horse? And so maybe we're working in the barn and we're doing basic targeting, for example. And because I've done it before <laughs> and I've got a little bit of clarity, then there is that consistency that comes into the process and the horse relaxes and the uh, mugging behavior diminishes and you see the horse settling emotionally and you're able to get now consistent target touches. And this is great. But I wouldn't then immediately put the handler back into that mix because nothing has changed for the handler. So now we would go over and we would practice. What are the skills that you need that will allow you to communicate better with the horse and to be more consistent in your handling? But what they have seen is that a degree of consistency in the handling has produced a noticeable change in the horse. And so now there's a motivation. So it's what you're saying, Dominique. Now there's a reason for focusing in away from the horse, for focusing in on your individual handling skills. Because after all, you put the horse on a trailer, you spend a lot of money, especially if it's current, you know, you've put a lot of money in your gas tank and you've driven a certain distance and you want to work with your horse. You don't want somebody saying, oh, let's go put the horse back in the stall and let him have some hay while we go over and hold a target out for, you know, while you practice holding a target out. But when you can see the profound difference that a change in the handling makes in the horse's response, then there's the motivation to say, well, let me figure out how to do that. Yeah. And sometimes it's good for people to see that their horse can actually do something that they wow. are starting to yeah. think that is impossible for this horse to do. But now they see it with their own eyes. It's like, okay, so it's really about my developing the skills. It's not a bad horse, in quotes. And then if it, if it doesn't change, so, I mean, the easiest thing, is if I tidy up my handling skills and my horse changes, it's like, yay, celebrate. Because that's something I have direct control over. That's the easiest possible solution. Or I make some change in the environment. 
you know, my horse was really nervous and anxious, but hey, he's the only horse in the barn. Let's bring a friend in. And he settles. You know, those things, it's like, yay, celebrate, because those are easy. But then if you tidy up the handling and there are still major issues, then you have to get the detective hat on more. And often those issues are related to physical conditions. And then you, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want that answer because I want to be able to ride this horse. And now we're looking at it more critically. And we're seeing that there's a lameness issue or I've got, uh, you know, a horse with ulcers or, you know, whatever it is that takes us down a different route. So when you can shift the behavior by changing your own handling skills, it's like celebrate that, celebrate that. Because some of the other answers, as horse owners, we don't want those answers. We want our horses to be sound and comfortable and physically you know, okay, um, and not, oh, I think your horse has got arthritic hocks, and that's why he doesn't want to back up, and that's why he's he's nipping at you when you ask him mm. to make a tight turn, because it hurts, so it's, you know, it's like, okay, let me, let me peel the light, let me, let me test this, and this goes back to, you know, this whole, oh, wonderful idea that we can test things, you know, if I change the handling and the horse responds and changes. Wow, that's information. And if I go back and I'm uh, sloppy in my handling and my horse starts mugging me, then I can say, wow, handling made a difference for this individual. That's great. These are testable. There's, I think there's interesting things about the consistency of handling. And I, I will describe a study to you and then I have a question for you that I'd I'm interested in your opinion about. Once again, I'm going to stop us here. Claire is about to describe a fascinating study that's going to take us into a discussion of the micro-shaping strategy and how it relates to building handler consistency. But once again, I'm going to make you wait until next time. You can see from this conversation why it was so much fun to work on the journal article with Claire. We both enjoy rabbit holes, and we both enjoy chewing over nuances of language. So join us next time as we continue to explore consistency in training. And remember, if you want to read the Loopy Training article, there's a link to it in the show notes. And until next time, have fun with your horses.